Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here this morning. It is a joy to gather with you in the name of the Lord Jesus and be in His presence. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, as Gary mentioned up front as we start worship, he said it's, and we talked this week about kind of this idea of this old school, like, worship set and looking at these songs, and you remember back. And I thought about that. Like, there's so many things about us that feel and we think about like that has some sort of memory or reminder of it. And Serena and I were just lamenting before church and she was sharing that song, I can only imagine, is so impactful and meaningful for her and the time that she came to the Lord and really her first introduction to this relationship with Jesus and how significant that is for her. And when that song is sung or those words are played, that they, they speak to your soul, it's beyond... Um, just words, but there's something and there's a depth about it, which is really sweet. And I, even as we were worshiping that first song and just singing about God opening our eyes, um, uh, open the eyes of my heart. And that's one of my things I've been praying lately uh, is that the Lord would show me things. And it's weird because we get in these moments where we feel like we hear these things from God as we hear these few things, but then we, we don't see them, or vice versa. We're seeing the Lord doing something, but in a way it feels like God is silent. And so it's just, uh, I love the, the, the truth of both of those songs this morning. So thank you guys for leading us through that. Dear Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for, um, God, for that very moment that we will stand in your presence, Lord. I thank you that your presence is here with us in this room as we gather in your name, but I thank you for that time that's, that's going to come when we will stand before you, Lord, and how we're going to feel and what we're going to do. Um, God, that, that spirit of, of not even being able to imagine it. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that we have life in your name, Jesus. Um, God, and we have life everlasting. I thank you, Lord, that that is not something that's to come down the road, Lord, after, after this life ends. But our, our life eternal starts uh, now. It starts with you. So I thank you for that. I pray for the, our time this morning. I thank you for what you've been teaching through uh, the gospel of John. And I pray that you would continue that this morning to us in the room. Uh, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Um, would you use your words to be sharper than any double-edged sword, to cut through bone and marrow? Uh, and, and speak to us. And so I thank you for that, and I pray these things in your name. Amen. So as mentioned, we've been this fall, we've been in a series uh, that we've titled Come and See uh, the Gospel of John. And it is a, for the, for an 11-week series where we are walking through the book of John. And if you know anything about John, you know how, how much we've discussed over the past six weeks, you'll know that in 11 weeks we cannot possibly cover the entirety of the book of John. So really what our focus has been during this Come and See has been these interactions that Jesus has with different people. And it's a spirit of an invitation. Uh, and we see it in John chapter 1 when, the, when he calls his first disciples and they call him rabbi and they ask him, what are you doing? Where are you staying? And he gives, Jesus extends this invitation. He says, come and see. We see it again uh, when, when, when Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus and Nathaniel said, you know, from Nazareth, surely nothing good can come from Nazareth. He says, come and see. 
And we see this theme again and again through Scripture and the Gospel of John is this invitation to come and see. And that's really been the spirit of um, this series that we're doing. And I pray uh, for you, for me, it's been really encouraging. And I pray that the same is true for you. We've been reading through uh, in our small groups and, and discussing our small groups, John, and we've been reading through in a devotional series. And so for me, it's been really rich and really good to see these interactions. And it's amazing how Scripture, it's something that you've read a million times or you've seen or you've heard or you know a bit about the story. And there's just a detail or just a, uh, a wrinkle to the story that you think, man, I haven't ever seen it in that way or that perspective that's new and fresh. And, and that's what's incredible about Scripture. We joked about worship being this, uh, this kind of throwback. But isn't that true about, about Jesus? Is that uh, Jesus is not a throwback. Jesus is ancient of days, right? That the truth, the truth is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's rich and it's alive. And, and for me, just what I've gotten out of... Um, preparing to teach on Sunday mornings, reading through and discussing in a small group, or just really a freshness and a newness to um, just to the gospel. And so we're going to continue that this morning in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you're going to have this the scripture up on the screen as well. And our guest services team, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and they will bring a Bible by and put a, put a copy of the Word in your hands. I encourage you to open up to John chapter 6. And this is a story that you have heard before, likely. Even if you, you, you haven't spent a lot of time in church, or maybe you've never even read scripture for yourself, this is a story about Jesus that is familiar to us. It's, it's this famous miracle that he performs, and it's the feeding of the multitude, the feeding of the 5,000. And so I want to encourage you this morning uh, to really try to look at the scripture and look at the truth and, and look for that wrinkle or that different perspective that may speak to you and where you are. And so uh, the beauty of, of the Lord and of his word is that I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what's been going on in your life. I don't know the truth that you need to hear, but the Lord does. And that's how good he is, is he speaks through his word. And so one scripture, one story may speak one way to Clint and another way to me and a different way to Shay. And it's all the same thing. And, and so, and I've seen that in our small group as we've been gathering and um, opening the word and reading through John. Uh, it's amazing to hear different people's perspectives. So we're going to read through the story. And the way it's going to the, the work is I'm going to read kind of two sections. We're going to jump in in John uh, 6, uh, verses 1 through 15, which are the actual miracle, the miracle of the feet of the 5,000. And then we're going to skip ahead towards the end of the chapter. And we're going to see when the multitudes follow Jesus to the other side of the lake. And and it's it's something that may not be as... as as known, and maybe you haven't read it or remembered it as well, but I think there's truth in all of it, and I think it's important to look at the whole story. So uh, let's read together in John chapter 6, verse 1. Um, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside, and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He had asked this only to test him, for it already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half years, half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. 
another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And so this is a scene that you've seen before. And here it is, is that Jesus, and the story starts by, by talking about sometime after this. And so just so that the journey that Jesus has been on has been one that honestly is exhausting. As you read through, and it's, it's crazy that even in six weeks, we are only to John chapter six. And you see all the things that are happening in the ministry of Jesus and he and his disciples. And he doesn't, it, it's all the traveling he's doing, it's by foot. They're staying in people's homes. They're, they're really a transient group of people. And they're, they're kind of like these, they're like these gypsies and they're traveling from place to place and interacting with different people. And the story and the legacy and the majesty of Jesus is spreading at this point. If you remember last week, Joe talked about uh, in John chapter eight, where Jesus gets in this argument of sorts with these Pharisees. And it's this very, it's this very intense confrontation that Jesus has with these guys and they're challenging on who, who Jesus claims to be and Jesus challenging them on what they believe. And, and so Jesus gets to this point and he's exhausted, he's tired. And we know from other gospel accounts of this, this same miracle that uh, this is after Jesus finds out about John the Baptist being beheaded and being killed and he's mourning and he's hurting and he's tired. So here he is, and these people are following him. Uh, And they follow him to this mountainside, and he sees that they're hungry. And he asks them, and there's two people he talks to. He talks to Philip, uh, and he asks Philip, he says, uh, he says the question, he asks him, he says, where shall we buy enough bread for these people to eat? And Scripture says that he's testing Philip in this, which is interesting, because there's not a lot of examples that's direct and clear that Jesus knew what he was asking. And in a way, he had an he had on an ulterior motive in asking Philip. And it's interesting when you see the personality of these, these different disciples. And it's, it's easy to look at Philip in this situation and say, well, look at Philip's response. It's not very faithful, right? Philip doesn't say, well, Jesus, it doesn't matter because you can make bread out of nothing. He says, well, we've got 5,000 people. That's just men, women, and children. If we divvy them up, trying to think if each one can have even a bite uh, maybe, you know, he calculates how much it's going to cost and how much bread there is to buy, which is an impossibility. And what he's doing, he's trying to figure out and calculate. But Jesus is not asking this just so that Philip can calculate and they can go and purchase the bread. There's no amount of bread that can be bought in this moment, in this remote place to be able to feed these 5,000 people. And then Andrew pipes up and he brings him this boy. He brings this boy to him. He says, here, here this boy has five pieces of bread and two fish. This is what we have. This is the provision and this is all that we have, Jesus. And it's cool because you look at Philip and Jesus, see Philip is the bad disciple and Andrew is the good disciple. Really, right, Philip gets it wrong. He's, uh, he has no faith and Andrew had, gets it right. And he has all the faith, but that's not really the case here. And it's, it's amazing how different people think different ways. And I was talking about this this week and I was talking about our church and we have a team of people that volunteer and, and they lead this finance team for our church. And, and we prayerfully decide, we set a budget and what God is providing, what are we anticipating God to provide? And we have these different people on this team and they all have different ways of looking at it, but are really healthy. There's one person on the team that's like, 
oh, God's going to provide. It's going to be great. No worries. Let's just plan. It's going to be incredible. And the other person on the, the team is like, wait a minute. Like, don't, like, just hold your horses here. We only have this month, so we've got to plan for this, and we've got to expect all these things. And then there's this other person that's in the middle that balances on both that. And it's just cool to see how different people that are wired differently, how they see things and how Jesus brings these people together. And we see this with Andrew and Philip in this, in this moment. And so the story continues in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Scripture points out this idea about men being, is that's how they counted people. When they did a census, they counted the amount of people. They counted by the men. Uh, and that, so it's much more than 5,000 people. There's women and children that are also there. Uh, but that's how they get to the 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12, when they, had, when, they had, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take him, make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus performs this miracle. He has these people sit down and he uses, he, he gives thanks. He breaks the bread and his disciples distribute this bread. And scripture says they had as much as they wanted to eat. They had their fill. They ate until they were full, until there was no more that they could eat. And so when they gathered the leftovers, there were 12 basketfuls that were left over. It was interesting that Jesus broke the bread. Jesus performed the miracles and the food was distributed by his disciples. And how many disciples did Jesus have? 12. And how many leftover baskets were there? 12. Exactly enough to have beyond provision. And so, and it gives you this interesting caveat in 15 where it talks about that Jesus knew that they intended to make him king by force. And so he withdrew. If you know prophecies of the Old Testament and this Messiah and the Christ that was to come, is that, that it was this king. And, and we sing and we, we talk about that Jesus being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he realizes in this moment that they want to make him king by force. They want to take him. They want to march him to Jerusalem and they want to put him. They want to put him on the throne and they want him to be king. But that's not what Jesus had planned. And so he withdraws again. And if you remember when we talked about this at the beginning, I talked about him being tired and weary and wanting to be alone. And then again, he performs this miracle. He feeds the 5,000. People are being healed. They're seeing the miraculous signs. They're realizing who Jesus is. And then what does he do? He withdraws again by himself. And so the, 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 the miracle is easy to look at that, and there's so much truth in that. But, but I, I believe that the story doesn't end there. And there's more, to, there's more to truth here. And especially in John, uh, this is a miracle that's, that's in all four Gospels. And in John, points out this second part. And so famously, Jesus puts his disciples in a boat. He sends them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He says, I will meet you there. And it's the famous scene where Jesus walks on water, where they're in the boat. It's at night, a storm hits, and Jesus walks out on the water. And when he arrives at the boat, they go to the other side, uh, and the crowd follows him. And so we'll pick up there in verse 25. 
And this is the crowd looking for Jesus. And actually, before we do that, I want to show you a couple things. I have a map just to give you a little bit of context of what this is looking like. If you remember, we're talking about a lot of stories we've been talking about is Jesus and his disciples and them kind of being transient and traveling around. And you see the area of Judea at the bottom. You see Galilee at the top. And you remember, you see Samaria right in the middle. We remember if we talked about the Samaritan woman, about them traveling around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans. You can see uh, how that happens. If you could see right out, I know it's a little bit washed out, but you see the Lake of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. That's where they are. And, and see where Capernaum is. That's where he sends his disciples to the other side of the lake. And then we have a picture of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. Mike, if you'll show that next. And so this is modern day Sea of Galilee. This is what it looks like. And so as they leave at night and they travel to the other side, he sends his disciples in this boat. You can see that on a clear day, they can see across to the other side of the sea. I know when we think about sea, we think about the ocean, right? But this is, uh, this is much smaller than that. And you can see that it, on a clear day, they could see Jesus and his disciples on the other side. And so the people follow him, the multitudes follow him. And have you, have you ever thought about that? These people are following Jesus and they don't even quite get it. They don't even understand what he's doing, who he is, yet they're following him. And they fall into the other side, verse 25, it says, when they found him, on the other side of the lake, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. When they ask him, what, was, what must we do to do the works God requires. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty." And so I want us to look at this story. And as we've, we've had this invitation to come and see, you see, the, you see the, the multitude of people that are processing through and they're following Jesus. And they're, they're, Jesus performs this miracle. He feeds them and they want more. And, and just like the woman at the well, just like the Pharisees, just like Nicodemus, just like Sean taught us with the, at the invalid of the pool of Bethesda, is that you see these people not quite getting it. And so I want us to look at this. I want us to, there, there's some truth here, uh, I believe, that's important for us And so in this miracle. And so we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to talk through a, a few things. And so first and foremost, when we think about this miracle and Jesus' interaction with the multitude, is that this miracle, first and foremost, is an act of generosity. This miracle is an act of generosity. If you know and you've been here for any time, we have four core values here at Vessel. And, and one of those core values is generosity. 
And so I want to I want to I want to tell you what that means. What generosity means as a core value. Generosity as a core value for our church is not a claim. You understand that? It's not that we're claiming that we're the most generous people and that God's generosity that that we excel at that or anything anything in that sort of in sort of way. All we're saying by by saying and claiming that generosity is a core value is the idea that that's who God's calling us to be. And the truth is, is what I think about when you look at these seven miracles in John and the miracles that Jesus performed, I believe that all of his miracles are an act of generosity and an act of abundance. So what are, when we say that generosity is a core value, what we're anticipating, what we're praying, and what we're what we're saying by saying that is we believe that the Lord's generosity, the virtue of generosity that is only in Jesus, wants to be fulfilled in and through our body. And, and so all we're saying is that we hold this to the highest regard. And we see this, this virtue of generosity, this characteristic of the Lord being generous throughout Scripture. And it is from the beginning to end. If you, if you know, Genesis chapter 1 begins with the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, and in Genesis chapter 1, it says to you, the Lord says to them, to Adam and Eve, it says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree, uh, tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has, breath, that has a breath of life in it, I give every plant for food. And it was so. It's this idea Jesus creates a garden of Eden as this place of ultimate generosity for humanity to live in, that there's nothing there that they can't have. It is abundance, that every tree, every tree and every plant has fruit. And it's this, this image of generosity, and it's a story and it's a thread that goes through the entirety of Scripture all the way to Revelation 22, which is the restoration of Eden. The Lord restores the earth to the ways of Eden. In Revelation 22, at, at the beginning of the last chapter of Scripture, it says, Then the angel showed me the river, of live, the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations." And so you see that the scriptures bookended with this place of generosity. We see it ultimately in Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate gift. It's like, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And I believe that when Jesus comes and he says that he wants to give us life and give it in abundance, it is a gift and a miracle of generosity. And that's what happens in this story is that Jesus' generous. Scripture first talks about this boy. It says, here's a boy with five barley loaves and two small fishes. Andrew brings this boy to him uh, that, has, that has this bread and this fish. And I love this idea. And this scripture, yours may say, it may translate it to boy or little boy or lad, uh, your scripture. But the literal translation talks about this young boy at the age of four to five years old. And I have a four-year-old. And I will tell you that my four-year-old is generous. And he is not generous because, because I've taught him that. It's he's generous because he's four years old. And it's like a kid that, that, that walks up to you and he has a sucker in his mouth. And you say, boy, that looks like a good sucker. He pulls out his mouth and says, here, have a taste, right? Like that's the generosity of a four-year-old. He has no context that he's giving you his sucker that you've had in your mouth and that that is ultimately disgusting. And we see it in this boy 
is that they say, here is this kid, and we have a four- to five-year-old kid that offers his lunch to Jesus. And that is, if that's not a beautiful image of generosity, Scripture tells us that we've got to have faith like a child. Faith like a child. And a lot of times we think, oh, that's a cute and that's an easy idea. And here we see generosity in a child, not because we taught him that, not because... Um, it, it's, it's something that, that society has told him. We see it because that's how God created him. And what happens when a four or five-year-old turns into an eight or nine-year-old? I have one of those as well. Not so generous, right? Not so generous. And what happens is they get into the world and they think about what is mine, what is yours? And that is our humanity and the brokenness of humans. Is that God has this gift of generosity And what we are is we hoard it and we take this beautiful thing that God created and we turn it into this hurtful, oppressive thing. Statistics show that with with the money and the resources and everything that we have on this earth, that we can solve hunger and clean water, that every person today can drink clean water and every person today can have their fill. Yet we still live in a world where there's starvation where there's dirty water, where people are dying of hunger. Why? Is it because the Lord has not been generous enough? Has God not provided? No, it's because we as broken humanity are hoarders, and we are happy to take and collect things in spite of someone else. And that's, that's what humanity and the world and society tells us is that we are to be collectors and gatherers. There's a great podcast. If you ever listen to, um, what's the podcast? The Bible Project. Thank you, Sean. There's a great, uh, if you, you should go and listen. If you love podcasts, The Bible Project, and they do a series on generosity, and they describe it the way that they use analogy is they look at it like a banquet. It's this party where Jesus invited us all to his party, and it's a feast. It is a feast, and there's hors d'oeuvres, and there's drinks, and there's food, and there's a abundance. And it's like we as human beings, we go into this party and we take hors d'oeuvre trays and we collect them. We gather a few more people and we hoard food. And there's people that come to the party and say, hey, can I have some of that? We're like, no, this is ours. Right? And it's it's a silly example, but he does a beautiful way of describing what, what hoarding looks like and what ownership looks like and how it opposes God's generosity. So what I believe is that generosity is a miracle. And here we see it in this boy. We see this boy, he has five pieces of bread, and we see he has two fishes. This is his lunch, and he gives it all to Jesus. He shares it. He's generous to Jesus. He doesn't say, okay, you can have one piece of bread and half a fish, but I'm going to save this, or you know, this is my lunch and my fill, and I don't want to go hungry. Right? He gives it all to Jesus. And then it says that what Jesus does is he takes what the boy has given, he takes what the boy has given and he multiplies it. That everyone, the, the scripture says that um, when they all had enough to eat, that they distribute the food and everyone had as much as they wanted. And you, I can just imagine this scene where it's like, oh, there's so-and-so. There's Martin. Oh, you want another piece of fish? All right, this is round number five or whatever it is. And he continues to give more and more until they're like, I've had enough. And then after everyone has had their fill, more than they can eat, they gather up the leftovers. So they gathered and filled 12 basketfuls 
of pieces of the loaves that were left over. Isn't that this beautiful image of what abundance and generosity looks like? And so first and foremost, when we look at this miracle, this is not, this is a story and a miracle of generosity. Um, the, the, the next thing that I think is true about this scripture uh, that, we, that we can see here that, that speaks towards uh, the miracle and his interaction with this multitude and this invitation is not only is it this act of generosity, but the, the miracle of generosity is fueled by compassion. That the miracle of generosity is fueled by compassion. Matthew chapter 14, uh, like I said up front, this is one miracle that's in all four of the scriptures. And in Matthew chapter 14, it says this. It says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, remember he's exhausted and tired, it says that he had compassion on him. That he looked out upon the crowd and he was moved by compassion for these people to feed them. And in and, and Christian culture right now and in the church, there's an infatuation with the supernatural. Is that we want to see signs and we want to see wonders and we want to see miracles. And that is what we're striving after. We're striving to see it. We want to see God do something miraculous. But the truth is, is that sometimes we're missing the point. Is that God is not just providing and doing miracles just so he can show off or so that he can show that he's Lord, although he does and although that is fruit from it. But, it, but scripture shows that when Jesus performs these miracles, he's moved by compassion. Next week, we're gonna be talking about Lazarus and we're gonna be looking at Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we see this, this shortest passage in all scripture, shortest verse in all scripture, Jesus wept that when he saw Mary and Martha and their sadness and that Lazarus has died, that Jesus is moved by compassion and that, that, that that's where his miracle comes from. And we miss that sometimes. We as Christ followers, we think about generosity and we think, I'm going to give or I'm going to be generous or with my time or with my relationship or with who I am. And it's going to be, I'm going to do it because it's an obligation. Because some pastor somewhere told me I have to do this sort of thing. So I'm going to check the Christian box. Or that we want to see God do something miraculous so that we can see it, we can talk about it. And, but the, the point is that we're missing it. We're not always moved by compassion. Um, and when um, he talks about having compassion on this, it's this idea of asking yourself the question, what does compassion move you towards? When you see someone that's hungry, you see someone that's hurting, are you moved by compassion towards action? And a lot of times we see a situation or circumstance, we think, man, that's really hard. That's really difficult. That's really sad. And we move on and there's no action on our part. And I want to tell you that, that God, when he has compassion on people, when Jesus sees these people that are hungry, he takes action on that. And I believe that the same is true about what the Lord wants to do with us. Uh, the third thing that we see here in this miracle is not only is, uh, is it an act of generosity that's fueled by compassion, but Jesus does the impossible does the impossible. It says, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they said, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus does the miraculous. I want you to think about this image of every time that bread is broken, 
Every time that fish is served, the miracle is performed, that it's multiplied again, it's multiplied again, it's multiplied again, that as it's distributed, that the, the impossible is happening. And oftentimes we can confuse the improbable with the impossible, right? We can sit, think, look at a situation, we can say that's improbable, and we pray that God does the improbable. And there's, that's not discounting the improbable. And I think that God works in improbabilities. But make no mistake, God works in impossibilities as well. And he can do the impossible. And that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Because we see improbabilities and we think, okay, God can work in that. We see God answer our prayers. We say, we give God credit. Like, man, he did the improbable, right? It's like, it's like, it's like Aggie football, right? It's like the thought of like the Aggies could win a national championship. That is an improbability. Will it ever happen? Probably not. Is it an impossibility? I know it feels that way, Aggies, but it's not. It's an improbability. We may pray for the Aggies to get that one national championship one day. And we say, man, that's a miracle. It's not. It's not a miracle. It's an improbability. And we give this idea and this moniker of a miracle, we, we dole it out cheaply. We say, man, it's a miracle that this happened. It's a miracle that God provided in this way. And it's not a miracle. It's an improbability. And we stop short at impossible. But I want you to know that if you are Christ and you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then you've got to take a step over the line of improbability into impossibility and understand that, that, that everything is possible through God. And when we pray for the Lord to do something, we, are, we, we can pray for the impossible. And I struggle in that myself. I struggle with, with what we're doing as a church and what God, what I feel and think that God wants to do. And I, I admit in my flesh, I stop short of the impossibility. And I will stay right at improbabilities, I think, because we can do this and we can manipulate or we can do these sort of things. It'll be really good. But what Jesus wants to do is the impossible. So I ask you, in your own life, what are you expecting the Lord to do? Are you expecting and anticipating the impossible? Or do you start stop short with the improbable? And the last thing that I think is really important as we see this invitation to come and see as Jesus interacts with this multitude of people is that not only does he have this act of generosity that's fueled by compassion, that does the impossible, but I want you to know the miracle is both physical and spiritual. The miracle that Jesus performs is both physical and spiritual. I've used this analogy before. I don't know if I've used it in this room, but I like to talk about this idea that the miracles that Jesus performs uh, and this idea of them, he provides for people both physically he raises Lazarus from the dead. It literally does this physical thing, right? He, he multiplies the loaves and fishes. He literally puts physical bread in their bellies. But he does something equally as miraculous spiritually, that he is offering himself as the bread of life. And I, I often relate this to the idea of algebra, right? I think about the, these miracles that Jesus performs in the context of an algebraic equation. And so before you zone me out, just hear me out. Just listen. So when we think about arithmetic, right? My children are in, are in elementary school. They're learning arithmetic. They're learning that two plus two equals what? 
Oh, boy. You go to Firm Bluff, don't you? Two plus two equals four, right? It's a one-sided equation. In arithmetic, all you need is one side of the equation, and then you find the solution on the other side. But in algebra, there's two sides of the equation. Then on both sides of the equal sign, there are numbers and there are variables. And to find out the answer to fully understand algebra, you have to have both sides of the equation. Does that make sense? And we miss it sometimes. And we see it here in this story is that they miss what Jesus is doing. They get one side of the coin, one side of the equation. They see the physical miracle that Jesus did. They said, surely he's a prophet. Look at what he did. He fed 5,000, 15,000 people with women and children, whatever it is, with five pieces of bread and two fish. Is that this is physically an impossibility. Look at the miraculous thing that he did. But what they're missing is that Jesus does something equally as miraculous in the spiritual realm. Jesus says, uh, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me. They fall into the other side of the lake. Why? Because they want to see him perform a miracle again. A spiritual miracle? No, a physical miracle. They want to see him feed them again, right? They're like, a, there's like, they're like my dog at 4.30 in the afternoon. She's hungry. She knows it's time to eat. She knows that I or my wife Shay are the ones that give her food. And she starts, she's tapping her toes at our feet and nosing us and pestering us because she wants to eat because she knows we give food. And they are just like those, those dogs. They follow Jesus to the other side of the lake and they say, do it again. Do it again. Multiply them again. Do a miracle again. Give me another piece of bread. Give me another fish. And Jesus says, you're missing it. He says, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. And what Jesus is trying to do is to get them to understand, to move to the other side of the equation, to say, you can't understand what is happening here unless you understand not only the physical, but the spiritual as well. We see it in Nicodemus. And that, that week two that we talked about this interaction with Nicodemus, we see it then when he says that you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, but, but climb back in my, my mother's womb. I don't understand. And he says, Jesus says to him, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of you of heavenly things? With the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, same thing. He said, if you knew who it was to ask you for a drink, then you would have asked me for a drink of living water. If you even began to understand who I am that's asking you for a drink of water, you would be asking for me. We see it at the pool of Bethesda that Sean taught on. He says to the guy, the guy that, that's, I can't get in the water. Everyone's getting in front of me. Woe is me. He says, do you want to get well? Do you really want to get well? Not do you want to get in the water. I know you want to get in the water because you think that's going to heal you. But do you want to get well? Because you're not seeing the whole thing. We saw it last week when, or when Joe taught on the interaction with the Pharisees. And, and Jesus was mean to those poor old Pharisees. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. He's not saying I'm speaking a different language. He's saying, hey, numb nut, you're not listening you're not listening to what I'm saying. It's that we're getting half of it. You're seeing half of the miracle. And so I wonder for us what that looks like. For us as a church, for you as a Christ follower, do you really get it? Or are you just following Jesus on the other side of the lake asking for your fill? And Jesus gives them this hard truth. And I encourage you to go home today 
or this week and to read the rest of John 6. And it's a hard truth to understand. And, and the, 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 they follow Jesus and they, he talks about this bread of life. And they said, well, Moses gave us bread when we were, he gave us manna when we were in the desert. He's like, no, no, no. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. God gave you bread from heaven. And they said, okay, well, what are you going to do? What sign are you going to perform? Prove it to us. Prove it to us about this bread. And he's thinking, I just multiplied five loaves of bread and fishes. Is that not enough? And you still want, what else do you want from me? And so he talks about this bread of living, this living bread that they'll never go hungry for again. And they says, we want that bread. He says, give it to us. We want that bread. And Jesus is literally like, it's me. I am the living bread. You have to eat me. That's literally what Jesus says to them. And they, and they don't like what he says. And they start grumbling. They said, Jesus, who is this? The son of Joseph? This can't be right. And scripture says that this is a hard truth or this is hard teaching. And in John 6, verse 66, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, what about you guys, the 12? He says, are you going to walk away too? They said, no, we believe. We know that you are the bread of life. And so as we close, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And we're going we're gonna to close with a couple of songs. But I want you to consider that this morning that final point, this final image of these, these, these people and these multitude following Jesus to the other side of the lake, wanting to see him perform again. And what is it that you find in Jesus Christ? You come here on Sunday, we gather in this room, you participate in small groups and rad ministry. Why? Why do you do that? Is it because in small group you find community? Is it because you come here and we, we worship and you hear this song that encourages your spirit and your soul? Is it because what we say or what we share, the truth of scripture is encouraging to you? Or do you do rad or do you tithe to the church or take communion because that's what you're supposed to do? And you know that, man, I need to serve because it's the right thing to do. Or do you really believe that Jesus is the bread of life? And are you gathering here on Sunday mornings? Are we meeting in small groups? Because we believe the truth about Jesus Christ, that he does the impossible, that he gives life and he gives it abundantly. The eternal life doesn't begin the moment we die, but it begins a moment of salvation. And is that why you do what you do? Because I, I want to encourage you, church, to not follow him around only getting half of the equation. Like my dog asking for another dish of food. Because I get, you're going to continue to eat on that and you're going to continue to be hungry. But it is, it is not until the moment that you fully and completely submit your life to Jesus Christ that you will be filled, where you take that bread of living, that the, of living bread, where you take a drink of living water that you will never thirst again. You will never hunger again, no matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on in your life. Because if you stop short, if you stop in improbability, and you don't move beyond that line, have you really submitted your life to Jesus? Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and I just want you to reflect on that this morning. 
We thank you for listening today and pray that you are blessed by this message. We invite you to join with us on Sundays or connect with us at our website, vessel.church.